Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. It's WrestleMania weekend 2023, and Vince McMahon looks completely ridiculous. <laughs> Episode of Stick to Wrestling. I don't know if you've seen Vince with all the shoe polish in his hair and that ridiculous mustache, but if you have not, go out of your way to do so. Anyway, Stick to Wrestling is a weekly 60-minute podcast about classic wrestling, usually from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we are going to do a 1973 episode this week. More on that in a moment. But before I get into that, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook group. It is a really cool place to discuss pro wrestling. Join it. It's free. Just ask to join. Now, I do this maybe every six or seven weeks. I know there are some people out there who don't like Facebook. I would not be on Facebook if not for the wrestling groups. And I get it if you have not signed up for Facebook. Ryan Ashby, I'm talking to you. You follow me on Twitter. We communicate on Twitter, but you're not on our Facebook page. Ryan, here's what I need you to do. I need you to use me as a mentor, okay, and do what I do. I want you to lie to your family and friends, the closest people to you in your life. I want you to lie to them and tell them, oh, I'm not on Facebook. No, not me. Because, you know, you don't want any part of that. You just want to be part of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. group. So that's what I do. And I recommend if you're not on Facebook and you don't want to be on Facebook, that's the reason. Again, just lie to the people that mean the most to you in your life. And with that, I want to thank Vincent Roger. Matthew Hahn, Mike Leslie, and Rock, excuse me, Mark Rock and Roland for their generous contributions to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. It is ad free. It is a completely free to listen to podcast. If you want to say thank you, just PayPal us at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small and certainly no amount is too large. With that, I want to bring on our occasional co-host who has a streak going on right now, Steve Generelli. Steve, thanks for taking the time and being on Stick to Wrestling. Hey, John, thanks for the invite. And uh, it, it's an exciting time to be part of the Facebook group as we just had our draft for the uh, the baseball league, uh, the Stitch right. Wrestling group. And I think the draft went really well. And since a lot of us here are big baseball fans, uh, the season just started. I'm really excited. I'm excited, too, even though I'm a Red Sox fan and we don't have very much to be excited about right now. Well, except for Marcelo Mayer might be coming up this year, and he's one of the best prospects we've had in quite some time. If you're into baseball and you're into me, which you you ought to be into both, check out the 605 Baseball Special that is out right now. It's uh, probably the first half an hour is just me and Brian Last doing nothing but talking, but talking baseball and just a little bit of wrestling. So you may want to check that out. Well, I, I heard it myself. I highly recommend it. Uh, a lot of great uh, Arcadian Vanguard veterans on there, like Lou Kippelman and Brian Solomon. So I, I give I give it five stars. Our five stars. That's the max. That's the most you can do. <laughs> I'm not into this new seven star thing they got going on. But anyway, uh, all right. So this week on Stick to Wrestling, 50 years ago, an episode of Championship Wrestling from Florida aired. It is available on YouTube. Once again, if you're 
part of the Facebook page. You can just click the link and we'll, we'll bring you to the show. As a matter of fact, I put that on, uh, before this episode comes on. But yeah, we reviewed, or we're going to review an episode of Championship Wrestling from Florida that aired. Steve looks like June of 1973. Yeah, and this is a very interesting time uh, for uh, for wrestling in general. I mean, um, just to kind of give you guys a state of the business at the time, uh, uh, we'll start off with our uh, beloved WWF. Uh, Pedro Morales was still in the middle of his uh, championship run, or actually in the final year of his run, and he had had successful defenses against Moondog Maine and Fred Blassie. And, and during the months that we're talking about here, June of 73, he had just uh, had a two-match series at the Garden with Don Leo Jonathan. Um, in the AWA, um, Vern was, of course, in charge. And uh, I did a little research on this. And, and this is something, uh, I don't know if you would know this, John. I bet you, you probably did. Um, I was checking to see, like, you know, who, who were his major challengers in 1973. And surprisingly, the one that he seemed to face the most was superstar Billy Graham. The other guys that he had uh, major matches with included Nick Bockwinkle and uh, Billy Robinson. But the other thing that surprised me, and you can tell me if you knew about this, he wrestled a lot of enhancement matches, like when they did their TV tapings. And he'd ha- I did not know that. Yeah, he'd have matches with Kenny J and George Gadaski, those types of wrestlers, and you know other local uh, Minneapolis-based uh, prelim wrestlers. And I found that quite interesting, since uh, the WWF never did that back in the day, and and the NWA. I'm sure the traveling uh, NWA champion didn't really spend much time wrestling in TV matches, unless it you know hovered around an angle of some sort. The the NWA champion did way more so. Uh, well, uh, sounds like a lot less than the AWA, but um, le- they were on TV. I mean, race was on Florida TV maybe two or three times a year, and sometimes it would be just an enhancement match. Like you know, you want we want to show you who Harley Race is. Um, WWF, you had the champion on TV, wrestling on TV maybe twice a year. You think that's that's about right? Yeah, about me. Yeah, that's that's fair to say. I would say. Yeah, I remember in 1985, Hulk Hogan wrestled Johnny Rods, and was the last time we saw Johnny Rods. And then 1986, so that we all didn't just stop wrestling, watching wrestling on Memorial Day weekend, he wrestled Bob Orton Jr. on regular TV, which is like, you know, wow, that's a big give. Was a big giveaway match for 1986. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think yeah, and in there against uh, Rusty Brooks as well, if I remember yes. correctly. That was when Randy Savage came out and challenged him. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, and so, so yeah. I mean, uh, um, this show. I mean, when you told me that this would be the topic for this week, it really uh, kind of surprised me. You know, 1973 is a little bit older than we normally would do, but uh, w- when I watched the show, uh, I thought it was very interesting. You know, Gordon Soley is the host, and and to me, this show kind of felt like. Uh, and uh, some of our older uh, <laughs> listeners would remember this. If you're fans of the NFL, uh, there used to be a syndicated show every week with uh, Tom Brookshire and Pat Summerall. I think it was called This is the NFL or This Week in the NFL. And they this, would, this, I think it was This is the NFL. This is I the NFL. watch that frequently. Oh, sure. And, and, and this show with Gordon Soley really had the same kind of feel to it. I mean, this is a one-hour show, and if you go to watch it on YouTube, it's like a 40-some-odd-minute show with all the commercials taken out. But in this show, there are actually clips of eight different matches, which is really quite impressive when you think about it. 
It was, you know, especially in a 40-minute span and, and Gordon, you know, it wasn't all wrestling. Some of it was Gordon uh, doing commentary. You know, Steve, when I was initially watching the show, the first time I watched, I watched it twice, I came away saying, okay, what was the point in any of that? <laughs> and then the second time I watched it, I'm like, oh, okay, they got the individual wrestlers over. They really weren't pushing any storylines. They weren't trying to get you – to you know, watch a particular match or a feud, but they got the the wrestlers over. They got, and you know, we'll go over them one by one. But you know, second time around, I'm like, okay, I get it. Well, I, I think it's interesting uh, as far as you know. I live here in Tampa now, and uh, my wife grew up in Florida. She she grew up in this area, and uh, and you know, when when she discovered I, I liked wrestling, was into wrestling, uh, she told me like as a young girl in high school, uh, she might be it might be Saturday night date night. She'd be waiting for her date to come and pick her up, and uh, her dad would be on the on the sofa watching Gordon Soley in wrestling, and so so this was you know something that she remembered quite. well well and uh, you know watching in this show you have to remember florida in those days florida in 1973 there were no professional sports whatsoever i know that i think the cincinnati reds had a minor league team that played single a ball here they had spring the dolphins there, there you go there you go and uh, and also uh we had spring training teams that would come down i think the yankees actually worked out of st pete for a long time and um but the, but the only really sports in the area, if you were a sports fan, were, were college sports. So this this pro- professional wrestling on a Saturday evening uh, when it aired, this was really big time entertainment for the locals. There, I mean, there wasn't anything else. So uh, I, I could see why, you know, him showing – and these weren't TV squatches that we're watching on this program. These are actual from live events, from like a big, uh, you know, their big city events, uh, highlights of certain matches, or in some cases, most of the match. So uh, why don't you begin, John, with your uh, your feelings about the very first match on the show? Well, I just wanted to start. I just want to quickly say, I hope Mrs. Generelli is not a Florida Gators fan. Not anyway. at all. No, no, no. Okay, no. good. <laughs> all right. And going around Florida, uh, the Florida heavyweight champion, depending on when the show aired, it aired sometime in June 1973, but I can't figure out the exact date. And Paul Jones and Buddy Colt were uh, switching the title back and forth. So one of those guys was the Florida champ. Steve, they both wrestled on this show. Do you remember Gordon saying, oh, the Florida heavyweight champion? Because I didn't catch that if he did. No, I, I didn't at all. Not at all. No. All right. That's a little bit weird then. The TV champion is Jack Briscoe, and the tag team champions are Roger Kirby and Bob Roop. Uh, Kirby Kirby was handed one half of the championship after Harley Race walked out. So I don't know what happened there. It's not in Race's book. But the opening match has a gentleman named Tosh Togo, who Gordon pointed out a couple of times was odd job in one of the uh, James Bond movies against a very young babyface, overmatched babyface, Stan Hansen. Now, I looked into this. Stan Hansen has his first career match listed. Now, has his first career match listed as January 1st, uh, 1973. However, his next match is listed as March 1973, which makes me think that the January match may not have happened or the date might be wrong. But this match took place May 8th, 1973. So we're getting Stan Hanton. You know, he's barely even a rookie. 
Yeah, it, it's so good to see uh, this match uh, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, Stan Hansen would go on to have a Hall of Fame wrestling career, but to watch him here in the match, uh, he looks like kind of a, a taller, uh, lean version of a Greg Valentine. I mean, uh, he's 30 to 40 pounds lighter than he would be in that first WWF run against Bruno a few years later, and and he doesn't have you know, the bleached hair and the goatee or anything. He doesn't really look like Stan Hansen that much. But in, in his work, as far as, you know, he, you can tell he's a really green guy because his his work punches and his maneuvers were really kind of green looking. And Tosh Togo had been wrestling since like 1949. So he had been in the business about at least 25 years. And uh, uh, it's kind of funny, uh, um, you know, he was on a job in a James Bond movie. And around the time of this particular match, uh, or at least when he was uh, in the Florida Territory, uh, Tosh Togo actually filmed a very low-budget film with William Shatner in Tampa. And this movie is called Impulse, and I'm sure it's on YouTube. But um, he, he would have quite a career in Hollywood in different uh, B-movies and also in mainstream TV shows. Uh, Tosh Togo was in a really famous episode of Gilligan's Island where uh, Rory Calhoun played this uh, guy who wanted to hunt Gilligan. And Gilligan was going to be his prey. It was kind of like uh, a take on the, the – was that story, a short story, the, the Deadliest Game or something like that? And I remember that. Yeah, remember I that? read that in high school. Yeah, and uh, so so he had really been around, and uh, and, and so they have the match, and and Togo wins with a stomach claw, which it, it just kind of seemed kind of a really awkward ending. I mean, he applied it once, and then Hanson kind of rolled into the center of the ring, and he, he applied it a second time, and and they had to stop the match. It was a submission ending, and uh, it was just kind of interesting to see this guy who was you know in his fifties. Uh, beat this young, huge guy who's a lot bigger and just beat him by a submission. It's kind of not what you're expecting to see. No, I mean, it's, it's right here in my notes. Togo looks old, and <laughs> he's a huge guy. He's got a huge chest, huge, huge shoulders. And you have to remember, 1973, we are not that far away from World War II, which means that everyone who is Japanese, Russian, or German uh, in wrestling is a heel, no questions asked. Now, somehow the Italians got away with it, Steve, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> We're, we're just not that far removed from having those stereotypical uh, characters. Yes, and I, I heard Tosh Togo, and the first thing I thought about was Dr. Mabogo from the Adams Family, the doctor that they would call over in Africa sometimes. But, but he didn't play that role from, from what I can tell. Okay. <laughs> so you, Steve, you mentioned Gilligan's Island. Do you have a favorite episode of Gilligan's Island? The, the, one, the one that I think is the best is the one I think is their, their take on uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I, I don't. But my favorite was the one where they were almost about to get off the island finally, and Gilligan screwed up, and they got stuck on the island. I like that one. <laughs> I guess that could have been any of the 80 episodes, really, when you think about it. But <laughs> – now, now, this surprised me, John. Like, so, so there's that first match, Tosh Togo against Stan Hansen. The second match, like, we really needed this, Tosh Togo versus Hiro Matsuda in a in a uh, judo jacket match. Where I mean, I was, I was stunned. Two two matches of the same in a row. I, you see, the light went on today. Because when I watched this uh, the first time a few days ago, I watched it, like I said, two or three days ago, and then I watched it about an hour before we started recording. 
I'm like, okay, I get what they're, I finally get what they're doing because they have Togo go over Stan Hansen and then they have this judo jacket match. They need to explain the rules of this, Steve, because I had no idea what the <laughs> rules were. I, I really, I, I mean, maybe in Florida they had them so often that it's like, you know, explaining the baseball rules over and over again during a baseball game, but we did not get any explanation and I, I am still clueless. I, I, as a fan of the of the newsstand magazines and getting the programs that the matches the old uh, Norm Keitzer magazines, I, I do remember, uh, especially in the late seventies, um, Antonio Inoki had a series of these mixed martial arts matches, and he had uh, at least one or two with uh, uh, Willem Ruska who I believe was a big uh, judo guy at the time or karate guy, and they would wear these white jackets to have these matches and they always look super lame and and you know the observer wasn't around back then but i mean everything i read about them they did seem like really lame matches and it didn't really help Inoki or the promotion that much but uh watching this i mean yeah gordon soli's announcing does put over a uh, hero matsuda who's like a local legend around here uh you know, he, they put him over big time, and and willingly so. It sh- that should happen because he did a lot in this area. But uh, the match itself was like definitely like a negative two or three stars. It was like watching paint dry. No, it was not a good match. Wilhelm Ruska, and if you are in the Facebook group and you remember this, you have a better memory than I do. Please post the information because back in seventy seven, or I want to say seventy seven, it might have been seventy six. They had Wilhelm Ruska show up on WWF TV, then WWF TV, uh, doing a judo jacket match, and it was like you know it came and went. They had this guy on, they had this special match, and. As far as I know, they didn't do anything with it. But you know what? Steve, I get what they were doing because they show you Tosh Togo beating this this big young baby face. And then they have Matsuda beat Togo. And it's like, oh, Togo's good enough to beat that guy. But Matsuda must be really good because he can beat Togo. Yeah, and he was, you know, um, went on to train Hogan and trained a lot of wrestlers. And and when you watch this show and you hear Gordon's commentary, he really puts over the guys who are involved with the office, which Matsuda was. And later on in the show, uh, he talks about his boss, Eddie Graham, and says Eddie Graham is one of the top 10 ranked wrestlers in the country. So you hear a lot of that, um, you know, commentary, and it, it makes a lot of sense. He's, he's old enough to have a kid who wrestles, but he's still in the top 10. <laughs> they, they really did a good job putting Matsuda over because Gordon was talking about how Matsuda was the world junior heavyweight champion and he never lost the belt. He simply couldn't maintain that low weight. That was that was interesting because you know that that was that again made it feel like a sport that you're watching. You know, it, that would be like a boxer not making a certain weight class and put he's put into another class. So, you know, in in those days, I think the promotions and this one is a good example. They're they're trying to show this or portray this uh, exhibition as a sport. They are, and I think they they did a good job with it. The 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 finish was that uh, Matsuda rolled 
rolled Togo up and, you know, pinned him using the jacket, which you're allowed to do. And clearly they were both underneath the ropes and the referees just, ah, I'm counting to three. <laughs> you know, you know, this, like we say, this match was in 1973. I was, I was thinking about my chronology watching wrestling. And I think like the next time I ever saw like a, you know, a, a judo jacket match. And I'm sure you would remember this. Uh, it was right in 1984. Ken Patera returns to the WWF and he's wrestling some prelim guy who was like wearing a karate gi or a karate outfit and just beats the hell out of him. And this guy was just, just like, uh, you know, like a, he might as well have been a mannequin uh, beaten by Ken Patera. I do remember that, and I remember he had, like, a non-squash match guy name. Like, if you're in the squash matches, you're Steve King or you're Frank Williams. This guy had, like, a fancy name that you're kind of not supposed to have, and it felt like Patera took a disliking to him. I do remember this. Yeah, he beat him like a dog for sure. Uh, now, the next match was, was kind of a, like a more uh, main event type match. You have uh, Buddy Colt, who's one of the headliners of the promotion, Against grizzled veteran Johnny Walker, who, of course, would become Mr. Wrestling 2. I remember when I first found out that Mr. Wrestling 2, after, after watching wrestling for over 10 years and seeing Mr. Wrestling 2 on television and in the magazine, and gosh, who is he? And Mr. Wrestling 2 was, he was a guy I'd never heard of. It's like, oh, he's rubber man Johnny Walker. I'm like, okay, who is he? <laughs> yeah yeah and he, he had been a, a long long time veteran wrestler and and you know in this match i mean if you can imagine this older guy who was mainly kind of a baldish guy uh with kind of a you know he had a big chest but a kind of a gut on him too yeah. uh he's using a lot of uh um knee lifts uh and using a lot of the same maneuvers that the future mr wrestling too would so you know you can just imagine him wearing a mask and you would think well the match is a lot better with him wearing a mask so yeah i i mean again you know i had never seen johnny walker in any of the magazines i had and i had as many old magazines as i could order literally from the old you know after magazines and i didn't know who this guy was i mean you know it's funny if you're watching this in 1973 you're like oh man this guy's career is almost over he's in semi-retirement at this point and little did we know it was just the beginning for, for uh, johnny walker yeah once he once he got that mask, I mean, he was definitely, uh, you know, on the cover of the after magazines and, uh, you know, back in the seventies, uh, you know, I remember him being on the cover of the magazines and a lot of the times they would show him like with the peace sign. And I always thought like he was like maybe trying to prove that he's a hip guy and maybe he's trying to prove that he's younger than he is. But, uh, somebody just pointed out to me, no, that just means he's too wrestling too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I you know, I mean, to to show you what a big star Mister Wrestling Two turned into after this. I mean, Steve, tell me if you disagree. I think in like the late seventies, maybe even into eighty, uh, before Tommy Rich took over, Mister Wrestling Two was the Bruno San Martino of Georgia. Yeah, he he was. He was extremely popular, and 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 I would say, um, you know, I'd say his career in a lot of ways is very comparable to Chief J. Strongbow because uh, yes. they, they both wrestled in Georgia a lot, and um, and they both took this weird career path of 
you know, wrestling like almost an entire career under their own name or, uh, you know, their original name. And uh, in Scarpa's case, he became Chief J. Strongbow and had a whole entire second career. And the same with uh, Johnny Walker. I mean, he became Mr. Wrestling, too. And that gimmick would continue till the late 80s. Yeah, I remember watching, uh, getting tapes of Mr. Wrestling 2 when he was in Mid-South in 1984. Uh, and by the way, it's on Peacock. The Mr. Wrestling 2 versus, uh, first being Magnum TA's coach and then turning on him and becoming his rival, in my opinion, is the greatest wrestling story ever told. And it is available on Peacock. Start, uh, November 1983 and, and move forward from there. Steve, I think there are two things about this match that were true. Number one, it was very slow moving, but number two, it was a good match nonetheless. It was a very compelling match. I mean, it, you really felt like you were watching a uh, a competition, a real a, a match that had a lot of give and take, and um, each one would kind of get the uh, the lead in the match, and then they would lose it, and would go back and forth. You know, there was some good brawling. There was some good wrestling added in. Uh, I had heard rumors, I'm sure you probably heard this too, that Buddy Colt was considered to come up north and wrestle Bruno and be a, a challenger to Bruno at one point. Uh, I, I don't know why that didn't occur. I know Buddy Colt got in that major accident that ended his career. Uh, maybe that was what happened. Maybe the accident occurred before they could meet up. But um, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Yeah. And, and, and I can see in, in, in Buddy uh, Colt, you know, why he was really revered. And, you know, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners remember, he became one of the commentators on Florida Championship Wrestling and uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida. And he was looked upon as a local legend. And but but he he um, had kind of. Um, a little bit of a Billy Graham vibe and a little bit of a Johnny Valentine vibe, just a, just a kind of large guy who was, you know, tough in the ring, raw bone in the ring. And Johnny Walker, even though he looked over the hill and had kind of a paunchy look, uh, he was just tenacious. He wasn't going to give up on this match and he kept fighting for it. And so it was a good old school match. It was a good old school match. And one reason is because Johnny Walker, during the match, consistently was working on Buddy Colt's arm, and his his uh, finisher was a shoulder breaker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it totally made sense. Okay, go for the arm. And there was a, a spot in the match where Walker, out of nowhere, puts Buddy Colt in a reverse rolling cradle, and the crowd pops like crazy. And it's like one, two, and like the crowd's, you know, getting hotter and hotter as they're wait waiting for that three count. And, of course, he kicked out. But, I mean, just a, a very different type of wrestling. Yeah, a, a good type of wrestling for sure. Uh, I, I mean, they definitely weren't looking into great bodies or, uh, you know, these larger-than-life characters. It was just good wrestling. And I, I would say um, watching um, Johnny Walker in this phase of his career, uh, I would say he'd be kind of comparable to a killer Carl Cox, you know, a, a guy who's balding and, you know, kind of like pudgy but uh, formidable and, and definitely somebody who knows all the – key maneuvers to uh, be devastating and to win a match. Yeah, he, you know, it reminds I me mean, again, the, the business has changed so much and everything has changed so much. It's been 50 years. You know, this weekend, it, it's as we're recording this, it's WrestleMania weekend. Bret Hart said something that was controversial that my opinion should not have been. He said that wrestling has become too phony. And he pointed out the spot where 
I don't know, 10, 15, 20 guys are standing outside the ring and someone jumps off of something very high and lands on them and they all go flying around like bowling pins. And hey, that's a fact. That looks ridiculous. The, the counterpoint to that is on this show, like, I mean, nothing looked as ridiculous as that, but I don't think anyone could have watched this and been like, oh, yeah, this is this is real competition. None of this, none of this is predetermined. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see Brett's point. I mean, that one spot which we—I mean, I'm not a, a, an ardent uh, watcher of AEW, but it seems—I uh, know I listened to the reviews with Jim Cornette and Brian Last, and it seems that those types of spots come up way, way too frequently on these shows. And I've seen it on WWE too, uh, where mm-hmm. they have that obligatory spot where the wrestlers. Uh, are standing together and get thrown around down like bowling pins. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, to, to challenge Brett, I mean, there's a lot of good wrestling on WrestleMania last night, WrestleMania, the second half is tonight. And, uh, even, I mean, the, the ladies match with, uh, Charlotte against, uh, Rhea Ripley. I mean, that's, that's state of the art. That that's outstanding wrestling. And, uh, there's a lot of good wrestling out there. No, there, there definitely is. That's a spot that I can see. Okay, you do it once, and then you put it away forever. And, I, and <laughs> they definitely have not done that. Meaning they, meaning the wrestling business. Now, now the the next match on our TV card here is Eddie and Mike Graham versus the interns. And this match again, and this which which kind of made this show so cool. These weren't just Florida matches. This particular one was from the Omni in Atlanta. So, what what did you think about this matchup? I thought they they kept the match or they kept the match itself kind of short or at least what they showed us was kind of short. Uh, they made a big deal about the the brand new Omni Center in Atlanta, Georgia, making it sound like you know it was a, a I'm sure it was for 1983, a, a 1973. How many times are we going to make that <laughs> mistake? You know, a state of the art arena, which again I'm, I'm sure it was for the time. I absolutely loved the interns gimmick. I think it's hilarious. Two guys, you know, you go into a, a hospital, you see the interns dressed up in these bright white costumes, or at least you used to. And that's what the interns had here. The, the, the white masks, the white tops and the white trunks. I thought it was hilarious. I always did. I, I guess the medics were unavailable. really yeah they're out in california we have interns out here (laughs) but yeah it it was it was it was ludicrous i mean just to see these two buffoons in their outfits and uh you know eddie graham um he had a lot of fire you know he he definitely looked over the hill but he'd been wrestling i mean he wrestled in new york in main events in the 50s and uh, mike graham is still very very uh, new to the business probably in his like second year of wrestling i would think Uh, but they did a fine job i mean this is more or less almost like a squash match with them going over and and doing all the tag team spots like the getting both of their opponents in the figure four or in a spinning toehold or something to end the match uh, but it, it was good to put them over since this is basically their program yeah i think mike graham started in 1972 so he's very fresh here um i mean what they showed was good they finished them off uh the grams finished the interns off with a double figure four leg lock mm-hmm. which the ref just let go which is fine <laughs> and now you've got me thinking about like you know the the excuse me the medics like dr <laughs> ken ramey and the medics it sounds like they should be playing cbgb in 1979 <laughs> or something yeah yeah they could have been the opening act for nrbq there you go we managed by captain lou all better (laughs) 
Steve, why why is it that and it's been like twenty years now, why is it that Mike Graham is so unpopular slash disliked amongst the internet wrestling community? I have always been a big fan of Mike Graham. I, I don't get the heat, as the kids say. I, I think what it is, I, I mean, this is just my take on it. I just think that when he used to do those old roundtable WWF shows where they would talk about a certain historical topic and also all the number of shoot interviews he did with Sean Oliver and different people, I mean, he always just came off as either a complete know-it-all, like, well, you know, I was the one that put together the NWO gimmick, you know, and, you know, and all all these. Did he really say I'm that? I'm sure he did at one point. I'm sure he did. Okay. It seems like they all say that at one point. But, 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 you know, he just, like, comes off so, so braggadocio. And, you know, and he says, like, you know, if I had a minute with Kevin Nash, I could beat him up, you know, and, and maybe he could have. I mean, I don't know. He could have. <laughs> I mean, he was tough as nails and he was a power lifter. I mean, yes, he was a short guy, but it just seemed like, you know, he had this major Napoleon complex going on and he just turned off a lot of people. I don't know. But I, I mean, you know what? The, the, of round tables are available on Peacock. If anyone wants to check them out, I've seen them. My reaction, uh, well, excuse me. I was surprised by other people's reaction to Mike Graham because I enjoyed him on these round tables. Steve, would you like to hear a really cool Mike Graham story? I'm like, I am a hundred percent sure that 90% of this story is correct. I would love to hear it. They're at the the NWA guys. This is like ninety or late ninety one, or at an airport, I think in Atlanta, hanging out. And Sid shows up. He Sid is now with the WWF, and Sid starts you know putting down everything about the NWA and the wrestlers and etc. And he starts in with Brian Pillman, and he's like, you know, WWF would never take you. You're too small. And Pillman's arm is in a sling. Now I'm taking Pillman anyway against against Sid. But Mike Graham gets up and he's like, hey, my arm's not in a sling. If you want to fight someone, fight me. (laughs) Well, Sid points out that he's got like a bandage on his arm or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Mike Graham flips out. He takes off his belt. He like ties his arm behind his back. He's like, I'll fight you with one arm time behind my back. Come on, let's go. And Sid's like, I got to catch my flight. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good story. Yeah, but I'll bet Mike Graham, you know, I'll say this about, you know, Sid, I'll bet Mike Graham could have taken on Sid with his arm tied behind his back. And I'll bet Mike Graham could could take on five of me with his arm tied behind his back. So this isn't isn't just me going after Sid. It's like Mike had a, a rep in the business. You didn't mess around with Mike Graham. Well, I think um, the the thing that I think he was so proud of, and I, I give him credit for this, he grew up in the business. He grew up you know, surrounded by, I'm sure in school, you know, kids telling him your dad's a fake, you know, wrestling is fake, you know, you're, you're a piece of garbage, what have you. He probably had to put up a lot of, a lot of that in his life, that kind of uh, disrespect to the wrestling business. Meanwhile, it's the business that feeds his family and, you know, puts food on the table. So, uh, he, he, I, I could see why he'd be so defensive, and and he sure. and he grew up old school. I mean, he grew up defending the business and defending the wrestlers because he knew how hard they worked and how good they were and how tough they were. This, this back in those days, I mean, a lot of the wrestlers were really tough, tough guys. They weren't like uh, showy models like they are now. So, 
I mean, I, I always liked Mike Graham. When I got Florida Championship Wrestling on cable back in 1980, 1981, they had me convinced that he had a real shot at becoming the next NWA champion, which is nothing but good promoting. And I met Mike Graham in 1991 in Philadelphia, and I thought he was a great guy. I mean, he was, you know, he had no problem just, you know, taking the time to talk shop with me. And, you know, I was respectful. I said, you know, I remember the match you had against Dory Funk Jr. on Florida TV in 1981. It was one of the best matches I'd ever seen. And he was, you know, he was very grateful that I remembered it and that I had a high opinion on it. So, again, of course, I'm going to like Mike after that, but I liked him way before that. Yeah, I I met him briefly at the Wrestle Reunion in Tampa, and he was just standing at a table all by himself, and I went over. And at the time uh, in Tampa on the local TV, they were airing old uh, Florida matches, CWF matches, like late at night, and him and Randy Savage. Randy Savage, yeah. Yeah. They they would do the wraparounds on him. And so I walked up to him, and I said, where's your tag team partner today, Randy Savage? And he said, oh, he must be fishing or something like that. And (laughs) He couldn't have been a nicer guy. I mean, he was just really nice. And uh, and actually, another guy who was just as nice who was there that day was uh, Dustin Rhodes, uh, Dusty's son. He he was he was so nice. It was funny oh, because wow. because Dusty was there that day, and he was a complete ass. And it was just funny to, to meet his son, who was so genuine and so nice. So it was, it was interesting. That was funny. One of our earliest stick to wrestlings was about me charming Dusty Rhodes into getting a picture of me taken with him. Someone told me, oh, you'll never get a, a, a picture with Dusty isn't take pictures. I was like, yeah, okay. You just threw down, threw down the gauntlet, pal. I'm getting my picture taken with Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> and you got it. And I got it. <laughs> cool. Cool. Uh, anyway, where was we on this? Oh, now we got a, a big match between two guys who are not Hall of Famers, but they're the next the next level down yeah it's a it's actually a lights out match uh which means anything goes uh dick murdoch in his uh, street clothes they he really wore his wrestling gear it looks like and paul jones in his street clothes he's wearing like dress slacks and uh in cowboy boots and um yeah yeah it just uh it was really good. I mean, you have uh, a smaller guy, Paul Jones, who was a big star in, in Florida and the Carolinas against uh, you know, the rugged cowboy Dick Murdoch, who was a lot larger. But uh, Paul Jones's punches and brawling were outstanding. And when I watched this, and maybe you can answer this question, I one thing that keeps coming up in my mind is how did Paul Jones, who was so revered in the Carolinas and so revered in Florida, who made the decision to make him this buffoonish manager in Crockett in the mid eighties? I mean, why, why did that have to happen? I, I don't know. I, I my <laughs> understanding and, and you know, in a way it's sad that that is what Paul Jones absolutely is best remembered for being on national cable television as this buffoonish manager. And I think part of it was, that he just wasn't good in that role. He really wasn't. It was just a Crockett, from what everything I've heard, Crockett liked him and wanted to keep him employed. And, and Jones had a bad back, so they made him a manager. But he was never a good manager. Like even before they got on WTBS, like when they were just doing, uh, just when he was just on Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling, he was bad. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just stunned. Uh, I mean, he, you know, from the magazines, uh, and I know you've said this before, like you, you said, you would never be surprised if you bought a magazine that he was the new NWA champion because yeah. he, was, he was so over wherever he went. And I know uh, in the late 80s, uh, before uh, JCP sold out to Turner, that uh, it, it was not sometimes called Johnny Weaver, the, the living legend or the, the legend of the show. And I'm sure in the Carolinas he was a legend, but I kind of wish that they had put the the moniker on Paul Jones because he could have been that good elder statement wrestler and maybe a guy who only wrestled part time. Uh, he had a you know nice look. He was smaller, but he had a really good look. And uh, it's a shame that they gave him that heel heel manager role. Yeah, I think it was just that there there was nothing else they could do with him. But even, you know, before he was putting on the, the tuxedo or even before actually yeah, even before he was putting on like the prom tuxedo and the big cowboy hat, and then he switched that ridiculous I mean, what else can I call it? Is it's a Hitler outfit. What, I don't know what else to call it. But you know, the whole time it was just a bad bad spot for him but i mean he was a really like you said he was a really good wrestler and i have said this you know in in 1978 1979 if i had opened up a magazine and said you know paul jones is the new heavyweight champion after defeating harley race i would not have been surprised that's how good he was that's how over he was well i know um i know barry rose is a big big fan of his and uh, i from what i heard barry rose uh, uh was going to write a, the bio of uh, paul jones so in the future i, I think he'll be a future guest someday on stick to wrestling maybe we could dive into that a little bit more because i'm sure uh, barry has the intel on uh, what really happened yeah barry was supposed to be on maybe a month ago and he just mentioned in passing that you know i'm moving this week and i'm like oh barry we can do it some other time i want you to, you, know, you have to take time out of your schedule when you're in the middle of a move but yeah we're gonna have barry on in the very near future we love barry to death uh this was you know one cool thing about this match they come out, you know, Dick Murdoch's the heel, and that's what I was wondering coming in. Like, okay, who's the heel here? Who's the baby face? And not even 60 seconds in, these guys established it. It's like Dick Murdoch is all scared because Paul Jones is wearing cowboy boots and he has one of his fists taped up, and he's being all heelish about it. Dick Murdoch, in my opinion, Steve, he's he's one of those guys – who he was he was an okay baby face but i always thought he was way way better as a heel yeah and the thing i liked about murdoch too is even later in his career i mean he garnered a lot of respect i remember there was an angle in the uwf i think in 86 where uh ted dibiase was still there and they brought murdoch in to do something with him on the heel side and it, it just felt like uh, Dick Murdoch was this, you know, veteran free agent that they just plucked off the uh, waiver wire, and he just came in, and he was like an all star. There was nothing he couldn't do, and he had a, a legendary reputation. So he went from like being not even on the roster to being being right in the main event mix almost immediately. Yeah, I remember he showed up in JCP, like fall of 1986, and it was the first time I got a, uh, well, no, not really. It's the first time I got a long look at him because I saw him when he was in Florida in 1980. And, you know, once again, he was just a, a bland baby face, in my opinion. And then he turns on Barry Windham in the middle of a match. And the next week, he's a heel with Lord Alfred Hayes. And he just had a lot more fire and, and he was a, a way more interesting character. I mean, I've said it on this show before, he had a run of about four weeks in 
early 1988 with Jim Cornette as his manager, and the guy was a tornado. It was like, okay, you've got a main ev- a pay-per-view main eventer right here, and then he went back to Japan, came back, he's with Paul Jones, and he's boring again. You know, last week we uh, we were really <laughs> more than busting on Dusty Rhodes and the end of his booking era in uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, but what, what you just said really resonated. I mean, uh, they could have put the Outlaws back together again. In fact, they, they did that very briefly for that uh, run in Detroit. They, they did a night where the Sheik came back and teamed with uh, – uh, I think the Sheik team with Kevin Sullivan again against the Outlaws, Dusty and Murdoch, and and they actually popped the house. They had, they, I think, they had the biggest uh, uh, box office of any of the Great American Bash shows in '88, and they were going to do it again. And the Sheik wanted more money, and they they didn't run the second show. But but you know that would have been maybe the perfect spot for Dusty, who wanted to keep doing his thing, but maybe, you know, get him in this like kind of retro team with, with Murdoch. And I bet you they could have pulled that off. I mean, look, it was a virtual certainty that Dusty was going to get the job as the booker and then he blew it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he quickly found himself outside of the promotion. And to Dusty's credit, you know, he, he went to the WWF, which is something we did not see coming. And then moving further down the road, he was a main eventer in the WWF, which I absolutely did not see coming. I thought, you know, Vince gave him a little bit of an embarrassing gimmick. Uh, and that was done on purpose, you know, but. At the same time, he got over and, you know, they, they barely, they, they didn't push him down our throats. I can't say that. And he had a main event series against Randy Savage that drew really well. And then the, before that's the series with Big Boss Band drew well. So I, I give Dusty all the credit in the world. And then the Ted DiBiase feud did well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dusty could get himself over really at any point. I mean, if you remember the very last dying days of WCW, uh, I, I think the last two episodes that they ran on uh, on TNT, uh, actually, Dusty and Flair were like the, the 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 top stars of the promotion again. Everything had come full circle. It was, yeah, it was unbelievable. I, I think they did that on purpose. They they knew that the promotion was not going to be around mm-hmm. at all in the next two weeks. So let's just you know have a have two going away shows and one of them was rick flair wrestling in a t-shirt against sting that was embarrassing (laughs) that was pretty bad but uh all right so yeah we're so this was a good match let me see paul jones i never understood this we've talked about this on the show but we haven't in, in years uh in 1980 he came back to florida under a mask as mr florida and it couldn't have been more obvious who it was <laughs> but i i never understood it it's like okay you you can have a big name in paul jones who has a a long history of being a a pro wrestling star in florida but instead you put him under the mask which you could do with anybody it made no sense to me but but didn't they do a similar angle with morocco where they he was like the magnificent m or something like that they did they did but he got quickly unmasked and that was his heel turn right um he was he was a baby face before that and that kind of explained everything you know he comes out he's got his head shaved <laughs> and he's talking about how you know he could be the next jack briscoe but you know he wasn't friends with the promotion so he was going to go this he he was going to be uh mr m that's who he mr. was mr m that's right 
And then two years later, in three years later, in, on Georgia TV, he was Dr. X for a few weeks. So <laughs> I don't know why Morocco just enjoyed doing that sometimes. <laughs> well, our, our next match on this show was actually a battle royal. And this was kind of interesting. Um, as, as it worked out on the, on the show, uh, Gorgeous George Jr. actually dumped out Ron Fuller to win the 19-man battle royal. And he won the prize of $6,012. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? battle royal well the first thing on my screen big bold letters battle royal and then it says six thousand twelve dollars so i'm glad <laughs> i didn't just imagine that twice i'm like why <laughs> we better throw another twelve dollars in here um, i mean i thought they did battle royals usually stink this was a good like four or five minutes of television. They did a good job editing, and plus the guys in the match kept it moving. So I, I give them credit. This this was enjoyable battle royal watching for me. What what I think really set this one apart compared to the ones that you and I have discussed, you know, like you mentioned some that happened in Boston where it was the first card of the night and then their promoters had to scramble to put together matches. Well well this worked out a little bit better because you could tell just from the, the limited action that we saw that some of these guys, Ron Fuller specifically, uh, he had been involved in kind of a big angle or big uh, um, getting bloodied up on the show earlier. So he comes out like the spirit of 76 all wrapped up with the you know tape on his head. And he, he's just like uh, throwing these tremendous uh, uh work punches but he looks like you're you know, a really great worker in there and um so th there was actually some storyline that you could tell from something that happened earlier in the card and it made a lot of sense yeah, what happened was he got bloodied up by the Samoans, and not often Sika, but the Tia and Tapu Samoans, who were two kind of smallish guys managed by someone named Dandy Jack. <laughs> it just kind of takes me back to like that old Eddie Murphy thing where it's like, no, my name's Buckwheat. No, not, not <laughs> Wheat is not my last name. Just Buckwheat's my name. Like my Dandy Jack. No, Jack is not my last name. My name is just Dandy Jack. I never liked stuff like that. It should be Dandy Jack Johnson or anything you got. But yeah, I mean, Fuller looked absolutely great here. He's a legit, a legit, really tall guy. He's a bit on the thin side, but you know, six nine doesn't always fill out the way six foot one does. And I mean, really, I looked at this. I'm like, why wasn't uh, Ron Fuller a bigger star? You know, he could have come up here and challenged either Bruno or Backlund and then had a big series against Andre. And I know people are going to say, well, he liked to stay close to home. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with going on the road, making some big money. Well, I know when we had Todd on a few weeks ago and Todd gave us that great episode about uh, mid-Atlantic wrestling, wrestling in the Carolinas, he, he mentioned that uh, at one point Ron Fuller was under serious consideration to becoming the next NWA champion. While I, I respect his opinion greatly, I think just the fact that Ron Fuller was six foot nine really kind of disqualified him. Is you know they they probably want if, if now if Ron Fuller had been say five nine to maybe about six two or six three, I'm sure he would have been in that conversation. But uh, you know he had a, he had a good career. I mean, went to Japan and went all over, and of course he's intrinsically linked to the promotion in Pensacola, the Fuller's promotion. So. 
I, I've never understood that, and and not challenging you, Steve. Just you know, I'm I'm interested in your point of view. Like I would I would say something like, um, okay, who besides Ric Flair, who would be the top ten guys to be the NWA champion? And if if you always if you ask me that, always on that list would be both Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen. And people are like, nope, they're too big. I'm like, so what? Like, why why are they too big? What's wrong with okay, Bruiser Brody is this really big, intimidating guy. Or, or Stan Hansen, and he's the NWA champion, and your your local babyface, whether it be Dusty Rhodes or Kerry Von Erich, has to overcome this. Like I, I've, you know, people, a lot of people have said this. I've, I've never been able to put that together. Well, I think I think Vince Jr. was the one that really uh, you know broke away from that that thinking that I'm talking about. You know, uh, he, he he felt having Hogan as champ was perfect, and and it worked. I mean that that really took wrestling into a new era. Uh, I guess what I'm what I'm saying is kind of based on the the thought process of the old NWA promoters. I mean, look at the guys they did pick. I mean, you have Dory, you have Briscoe, you have Harley Race, Ric Flair. They're all maybe about the same size. They're all about the same weight i mean there's no there's no real standout uh, even there isn't even a barry windham in there like uh they're, they're all about the same size so i i don't think that they were uh trying to change the or, or rock the boat so to speak with a different looking champion no, I, I can see that. I mean, you want to stick with what works. So I, I can definitely see that. I just, you know, couldn't see the idea of a Hanson or a Brody being disqualified from, from consideration. And if you think about it, wrestling is kind of that David and Goliath thing. Right. That's why most big guys are heels, or at least at one point were heels, because, you know, you had that, that David versus Goliath story. And like to me, Hulk Hogan, it worked. There were times where I sat and wondered, gee, why is this working? Because I would think, you know, Greg Valentine, can he beat Bob Backlund? Absolutely. Can Bob Backlund beat Hulk Hogan? Sure. You know, David versus Goliath. Can Greg Valentine beat Hulk Hogan? Absolutely not. But it didn't matter. People went to buy tickets to see, you know, the, the smaller heel get beaten up by big Hulk Hogan. Yeah, it, it, they definitely uh, changed the way the business went when WWF did that change. Now, another match on this card, this of, of all the ones that we've talked about and the, the ones that are left, this is probably the one that they showed the very least footage of, Tony Charles versus Big Jim Brooks, who apparently is the cousin of Dick Murdoch. I did not know that. It's right here in my notes. I, before I saw this tape in the, you know, I, I this was floating around back in the eighties. I I've seen this before, but like before I got this, I I uh, had never even heard of Big Jim Brooks, and now I know that he's Dick Murdoch's cousin because I had no idea sixty seconds ago. <laughs> and, and Tony Charles, for the fans that didn't know, I know Jim Cornette has mentioned him a lot on the podcast over the years. Uh, just, just a guy who was kind of like your uh, Dean Malenko of the 70s, maybe. He's just somebody who had all the holds and had all these different maneuvers and great flex flexibility and uh, brought a European style of wrestling. And uh, it's a shame, really, really, on this tape that we only get to see him for probably less than a minute. No, I, he was an excellent worker. I mean, if you anytime you know you have the chance to see a Tony Charles match, I, I recommend you do so because he was really good. And you're right. I wish we could have seen more of him here. He had a son who 
about 40 years ago, got a scholarship offer to play football at Alabama and something happened. He got sick and he wound up not doing it. But so, I mean, certainly, I mean, we all know how good you have to be to play that level of college football. And so, I mean, obviously there's some great athleticism running through that family. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he was uh, definitely a standout. And, um, and then the, the, the next match, and I guess it's probably the last one of the show, uh, Jack Briscoe against Bobby Shane in the main event of the hour of wrestling. Two huge stars from that era. This is about a year before, not even a year before, Jack Briscoe won the NWA championship. And he was seen as a, a rising star, almost like that was, I don't want to say a foregone conclusion, but you know, you, I mean, you would think in 1973, Jack Briscoe was going to be a future NWA champion. You didn't have to wait much longer. Yeah, um, according to the the record I'm looking at, Harley Race did beat Dory Funk on May 24th in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, Harley's a, close to Harley's home, and then Jack won the title on July 20th of '73 in Houston, Texas. And okay, so the next month. Yeah, the next month. And in fact, when I watched this, I was I I was kind of under the assumption that Jack Briscoe was the champion at the time, but it was just like a month or so prior, I guess. Yeah, uh, Jack Briscoe was built here as the Florida television champion. I, I don't really have a perspective on how big a belt that was, but here's something I miss about wrestling, Steve. And this, this started going away, God, over 40 years ago when I noticed the Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, they used to have a Georgia heavyweight champion. Here's the Georgia heavyweight champion, Tommy Rich. And I liked that. I liked it when they had a Florida heavyweight champion and a world-class their big, their biggest champion was the Texas heavyweight champion mm -hmm. and early eighties. That all went away. The Georgia champion became the national heavyweight champion. The Florida uh, kept putting different championships out there that were bigger than the Florida championship, whether it be the Southern championship, the international championship, the North American championship, uh, world-class went to the American heavyweight champion, but I miss state titles. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I do know as a magazine reader, the Missouri state title seemed to be the biggest of them all as far as the most important and seemed like the Missouri state title was the one that would take you to the NWA championship at some point. But Jack, Jack Briscoe here, he's definitely in his prime. He, he just has this, you know, he has that aura of a champion. He is a great amateur wrestler, as most probably know, but his brawling is very good. But he just has this tremendous look. I mean, he looks like a completely polished, completely professional championship wrestler. And uh, I, I can see why it was uh, fairly easy for the NWA promoters to give it the green light and say, this is the guy that we want to build around. And he would end up having a good three three-year run or so. Uh, he actually was, he was only champion for about two years, uh, maybe a little, about two and a half. And I know Jack just got tired of the schedule. Um, but Jack Briscoe, I remember, uh, getting Florida championship wrestling in 1980 and seeing him for the first time. Now, 1980, he's past prime. Let's be honest. Yeah. He's, yeah. And I, it was the first time. I watched the guy wrestle and I was like, Oh my God, this guy is so good at what he's doing. Yeah, he, he was just so polished in the ring and just, uh, I mean, there wasn't anything he couldn't do. And he, he just looked like a champion. I mean, he looked like the kind of a guy you could have 
put out with Howard Cosell or one of the top announcers. And it really made wrestling feel like it was a big time thing. And I think he uh, definitely stands up along with Bruno and Vern and the Funks, uh, Dory and Harley. I mean, they're all great champions in their own way, but uh, there was something special about Briscoe. And I, I know, um, you know, later on when, when they had to pick uh, Backlund to be the next long-term WWF champion, uh, they really wanted Backlund to be kind of patterned after Briscoe. And I think had, had there not been a Briscoe, there probably wouldn't have been a Backlund as champion. That's, that's a really good point. As a matter of fact, if it's, you know, 1976 and then Bruno San Martino is like, look, get this belt off me. I've had it. I really would have, I, I would have flown Jack Briscoe up to New York and had a long talk with him. And, you know, I said, look, I know not long ago you told the NWA, look, I want out of this schedule. Our schedule is nothing like that schedule. You know, I'm not saying it's not a pro wrestler schedule, but it's not NWA champion schedule. And, and I think Jack Briscoe would have been absolutely fantastic in Backlund's role. Not that Backlund wasn't, but Briscoe, I mean, if, if I'm, if, you know, if I'm in Vince McMahon Sr.'s place in 1976, the first call I would have made would have been to Jack Briscoe. Yeah, I, I think he would have been great if, if he had been willing and his health was good enough. I think he would have done a great job with it. Uh, Bob Bobby Shane is a guy that is sadly uh, forgotten by a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, you could tell uh, he was very animated in the ring, had a really, for its time, very outlandish ring gear. And yes. uh, he was he was really <laughs> quite the character. And, uh, and you know, uh, from different things I've read, uh, people have speculated that had he lived, he would have been a major player in the 80s, uh, maybe not so much as an active wrestler, but they thought he would have been either a top booker or, uh, you know, played a major role in the wrestling game in the 80s. Yeah, it's a shame. As as many of us know, Bobby Shane uh, died in an airplane crash, uh, which you know just happened way too 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 often for entertainers with entertainers in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. And uh, yeah, I think Bobby Shane, you know, he was a little bit on the small side, not terribly small, but I mean, clearly he would have had a big big career in wrestling. And like you said, I have heard that he was a a very creative guy and would have been around in the business even after his, his in-ring uh, career had, had expired. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, earlier in the show, we, we did mention uh, the Gilgan's Island, and I think it's only fair to say that um, Dory Funk's reign as uh, NWA champion, D- D- Dory's reign began in February of 69, maybe mm-hmm. about six or seven months before the debut of the Brady Bunch, and his <laughs> reign ended in May of 73, about a year prior to the end of the Brady Bunch. So I just want to put that into perspective for the fans at home. I, I'm, I'm sure there's a connection there someplace. It's like, you know, Jack's like, look, I'm tired of being on the road, missing the Brady Bunch, and... <laughs> I'm going to Florida to watch the reruns. That's another thing, too. Like, that's a, another thing you would have had to talk Jack Briscoe into is that, you know, we have long winters up here in the Northeast. And I know that Jack was not a fan of that. So that's another thing you would have had to overcome. But I, I still maintain that had they been able to get Jack Briscoe as WWWF champion, he would have been he would have been magnificent in the role. Well, um, uh, I think we did a good job recapping this entire episode. Do we have Do we have time for like one final question or, or a comment? Uh I mean, I no, not really, Steve. <laughs> if you got something you want to throw out there, I think you know we we've we've done a good job this week. All right, I'm gonna I'll save that for next time. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Steve, I want to thank you for being uh, our guest co-host, our, our usual co-host on Stick to Wrestling. Thank you for taking the time. No, it's great. It was really fun to revisit uh, part of wrestling I'm not too familiar with, uh, 1973 Florida. If it's be if it's before my time, it is ancient. I <laughs> I barely remember anything about 1973 that does not involve the New York Mets. All right, I, I want to thank uh, Brian Last for giving me this this opportunity, this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.